Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey, friends. You may have noticed over the last three years that I've talked with a lot of people who have left Christianity, at least in part because of the messaging around sex and sexuality. And you might have wondered, why doesn't Leah ever talk to anyone who's Christian and has a positive relationship with sex? Well, it's not for lack of trying. I don't want to suggest that all Christians are damaged around sex, but I've approached countless Christian women to do interviews for this podcast, and none of them have said yes. Which is why I was so thrilled when Hannah contacted me to say she wanted to do an interview. Hannah grew up in Christianity and didn't have sex before her wedding night, even through a five-year courtship with her now husband. She has a very strong faith, which helped guide her through two miscarriages and resulting medical treatments. You'll hear about all of that and how it affected her experience of sex with her husband. And one more thing before we dive in. Near the end of this conversation, you'll hear Hannah talk about teaching her young daughters the correct names for their body parts and demystifying their bodies in general. This is an incredibly timely conversation, because sex education in the United States is currently under attack, as is so much else. For instance, recently a New Jersey school district announced it would limit sex ed instruction to a single 35-minute period on the last day of school in grades 2, 5, and 8. That's not even enough time to get kids beyond the giggling stage, let alone cover basic anatomy, talk about appropriate boundaries, and give them the skills they need to recognize their body signals when they're in a dangerous situation. In March, Tucker Carlson called it common sense to not talk to children about their genitals, calling it, quote, disgusting and probably illegal. My colleague Justine Angfonte and I published an op-ed at NBC News pushing back against this rhetoric and explaining why it's absolutely crucial to teach children the proper names for their genitals and to talk openly and without shame about their bodies. It can literally save their lives. Because a child who learns that anything down there shouldn't be mentioned, is much more likely to not tell an adult 
if someone is touching them inappropriately. To find that op-ed, you can search my name on the NBC News site, or there's a link in the episode description in the app you're listening on right now. And now, let's get back to the star of this episode. Hannah is a 26-year-old cisgender female. She describes herself as half-white and half-Indian, but she jokes that her father is so white that you'd never be able to tell my mother is from India by looking at me. She describes herself as heterosexual, monogamous, married, and her body as curvy. I'm so pleased to introduce Hannah. Hannah, I'm so excited to talk with you. As everybody knows by now, I love it when listeners let me know that they want to do interviews, and you are one of those. So thank you so much for getting in touch and for being here today. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I start every interview in the same place. What is your first memory of sexual pleasure? So I listened to a lot of your podcast episodes, so I knew this question was coming. I know that no topic is off limits, so I'm honestly just going to go there and say that my first sexual memory, I don't know, I wouldn't say it was pleasurable. I um, was in a really bad relationship when I was in high school before I met my husband, so around the age of like 14, 15. The person who I was seeing at the time was very physically aggressive. So I don't really have great memories starting off. I mean, like, I also, I remember like when you're five, six, seven, eight, and you watch like a cute movie and you feel all tingly everywhere, you know, like (laughs) that kind of a thing. But like really like sexual pleasure memory was finding out what a boner was when I was like grabbed and felt something happening in his penis area, you know, and then being like, what the heck? Because like, I hadn't really ever had that. I mean, I was 13, 14, well, probably 14 or 15 at the time. So I was like, what's going on, you know, and then like, he would just like, touch me when I didn't want to be touched. And he would um, say a lot of like false things about me to other people. So that kind of like shaped my high school experience. That's actually stuff that I still carry into my marriage. Like I absolutely hate my boobs being touched because that brings me like right back to that spot being in a place where like I was never asked or never, you know, like it wasn't in a kind and loving setting. So I would say that's my first experience. That's been stuff that I've worked through for many, many years and I'm still working through. Yeah. So how long were you with this boy? Um, so probably off and on for about 10 months. Mm -hmm. And I was just so young that I don't really think I ever thought of it as a problem. Like there, it was a big problem, but I just, it was like so misshapen in my mind that like we would end things and then I would come back and then we would end things and I would come back. And It was so bad that like that year I had an eating disorder. I mean, like I was skin and bones. I I had a terrible relationship with my parents and they actually pulled me out of the school and begged me to get a restraining order. But like things were just so messed up in my in my brain that I didn't really see the reality of the depth of the 
situation. I, I just didn't really see it as a problem. And so it was 10 months of like grueling <laughs> my poor parents, like off and then again, and then on again, then off again, then on again. Do you remember what attracted you to him in the first place? So I grew up in a very, very small Christian school, and I didn't really have any idea of like what life looked like outside of those very, very safe walls where sex is never talked about, where nothing ever really happens besides you go to school, you you learn about the Lord, you do your studies, and then you come home. And so I think going into a very massive public high school was just so overwhelming for me. And I was just like desperate to find friends. And so he was very like quick to want to be my friend. And we met actually in band class. And then I had had things with other boys starting like my first kiss was at 13. But I never really like it was never more than just like a thing. So being that young people like, oh, is he your boyfriend? Is he your boyfriend? You know, and it was just quick to put a label on it. And then it got very intense, very fast. Yeah. So you said that you try to block stuff out. Are you okay having this conversation about him? Yeah, so um, I actually did something called a freedom appointment about a year ago. And that really helped me to be able to get to a spot where I am able to like, talk about it. And my husband and I have been able to have really good conversations where I'm like, you know, if you really want to have good sex, you're probably not going to want to grab my boobs because it's going to just bring me back. You know, and poor yeah. him, he's like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, but it just, <laughs> it just brings me back to that like spot. And it, it makes me like actually want to throw up. Sometimes it's fine, but other times, if I'm especially like if I'm not real, like if I'm sort of in the mood, but not really, and my mind can easily like wander, then I have to, you know. So we've had good conversations, and the freedom appointment really helped. And I've talked to a lot of, I actually share my story um, with young women. And so I've had opportunities to talk about it. So this is fine. Okay, great. I've never heard this term before. What is a freedom appointment? So it's actually something that our church offers, and it's like a very intensive four-hour session where you meet with someone who's a counselor, and you go through like all the people that you need to forgive and like why you need to forgive them. And in the the verbiage that you use would be, "I choose to I choose to forgive this person for this," and then I just listed out all the things that that person did. Now, does it mean that I, I, I do feel like I've forgiven him, but have I forgotten it? Obviously not. Well, those are two different things. Yeah. Yeah. You know the saying, forgive and forget. I'm like, no, that's not a thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't forget about it. And it doesn't mean that just because you've let it go that the trauma isn't still there. Yeah. But just saying it out loud and releasing that like bondage that what he did to me is weighing on me like it was somehow my fault or somehow... Um, my problem, just letting it go and be like, no, I forgive you. And I'm not going to let what you did to me affect my life any longer was really, really freeing for me. I'm really glad that you got to have that experience. Yeah. Uh, so let's go back a little bit because we started right at age 14 ish. Um, yeah. So let's go back to your childhood home. And what were you hearing in your childhood home about sex, about sexuality, about being female. Mm -hmm. So my home, I, it was such an amazing home to grow up in, like two parents who really loved me and who really loved each other. And 
it's honestly weird to me that I got into that situation because I never felt like I was missing out on love. You know, like some people say that like I didn't feel loved. So like I looked for love in other areas. I always felt loved by my parents. But I think growing up in such a sheltered home, going into like what was the real world for a 14 year old was very, very overwhelming. I just didn't really know. And I mean, I learned about sex from the fourth in fourth grade. My friend opened up the dictionary to the word sex and she's like, oh, my gosh, look at this. And I was like, what? You know, like a fourth grader would. And we read it. And then I went home and I was like, mom, I was like, I read this in the dictionary. And she was like, oh, okay." And then that night I was getting ready for bed and she came down with this book. And then she read me the book and I was like, you do that? (laughs) What? (laughs) I'm like, that's so gross. I thought it was just like not real. (laughs) And then we just kind of like we had that talk and she talked to me about periods and then she took me away when I was 10 and she like we talked about it some more and she asked me if I had any questions and. And then that was kind of it. It was never like a tap, like we could never ask questions. I never felt like I wasn't free to ask my parents questions. But the church that I grew up in was very, very um, strict in a lot of rules. Very, um, I don't even know the right word. It wasn't a very healthy place. And it was sex is bad until you're married and then everything is permissible. And so I grew up feeling like, okay, like if I have sex before I'm married, then I'm bad. But as soon as I'm married, it's everything is fine. So I didn't feel that like freedom to like ask questions because it wasn't talked about in our church. It was seen as a bad thing, even though my parents would have been fine to talk to me about it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. And in terms of the church, what about things leading up to sex? Was kissing okay? Was holding hands okay? Yeah, that type of stuff was fine, but it was like, you wouldn't want to be making out with a boy because that would lead to this. You wouldn't want to be, you know, like alone with a boy for a long period of time because that would lead to this. And they never really did any like purity talks. They never brought anybody in. So like fast forwarding to now, like I'm in a church where I can go to sessions that talk about how to teach my kids about sex. And so Mm. that is something that I like actively looked for. And in fact, my best friend teaches parents how to teach your kids about sex. So it's really interesting (laughs) how like it's come full circle. So I think that that environment definitely shaped um, me getting married and then now with my own kids. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Our church is not going to look like that, you know? Yeah. So uh, before we started recording, you told me that your parents come from two very different cultures. Yes. And I'm curious how that showed up in your home around um, sex and sexuality, if at all. Well, my mom actually was supposed to have an arranged marriage. When she was about, I think, 17, someone came to the house while she was sleeping. And this was still in India? In England. So you grew up born and raised in England. My parents met in England at college. So she was born into a Sikh family. Like, don't cut your hair. Don't shave your legs. Very, very traditional Sikh family. And so um, first generation immigrant. Oh, I know she was supposed to have an arranged marriage. So at 17, someone came to look at her and they were like, and she was sleeping. So weird, right? And they were like, oh, she's not pretty enough for my son. No. Oh, wow. And so then they left. And 
if I could like, I mean, I could probably show you a picture of my mom, but like she is the most beautiful woman. Like she's absolutely stunning. And so um, they were, they didn't want to marry my mom. So it wasn't very traditional for Indian women to go to college. But my mom actually became a Christian um, through a youth group in inner city London. That's where she grew up. Hmm. Um, some white English people brought her to church with them. Then she became a Christian. And then her brother became a Christian. And her sister became a Christian. Then her mom became a Christian. Wow. And so um, then she went off to college. And that's where she met my dad. It sounds like she really took on Christianity. Did she... Uh, maintain any of the sort of Sikh traditions? Not really. Besides like the dress, like even now, like when we have fancy events, she just, she still dresses in like a traditional Indian mm -hmm. um, sari or an Indian suit. We eat a lot of Indian food in our house. There's like different fun Sikh traditions that we do, but like we don't practice anything that Sikh, Sikhs do, but her father is still Sikh. So yeah, I'm just I'm curious about because I my understanding is that that's a very conservative culture. But it sounds like she was open to talking. She was open to having conversations with you. So I'm really happy for you that you got to have that relationship with her. It was funny because like when I got married, nobody really talk to me and I know we'll get into that about sex so like we didn't really talk about it leading up to my marriage but she always was like if you want to talk about it like I'm here but I just never really felt comfortable because we just didn't talk about it in our daily life so at any point did you discover masturbation um no not really that's just never really been something that I have really done I remember like when you know, when your body changes and you start having like cervical mucus, mm -hmm. I remember like being like, why is that happening? So I remember like feeling down there, seeing like what, like why is, why is stuff coming out? But I never really did anything for pleasure. I think like one time in the bath, I was laying under the water. I think I must've been like 16 to 17 at the time. And I was like, oh, that feels good, but I never really like did anything with it. Mm -hmm. I think I was just still very stuck in that place of like, okay, I don't really want anything to happen because I've been in places where I have felt things that I didn't want to feel. And so I'm just not even going to go there. Yeah, sure. So did you have any kind of sex education prior to high school? Was there anything going on in the Christian school around sex education? Nothing in the Christian schools. My parents, like I said, they did that like weekend where they took us away and we talked about sex and nothing was off the table. We could ask whatever we wanted. And and then my mom read me that book. But then I got to high school and then my freshman year of high school in health class, they talked about STDs and protection and like went over all that and did like the basic like this is what sex is. And then I got pulled out of school my freshman year and went, got sent to a different school because of the situation with that boy. My parents were like, okay, if you're not going to put a restraining order on him, then we're pulling you out of school. So he sent me to another school and that public school had a sex education class. And that, it was just like, there was this weird question box that you could like ask whatever question you wanted. And so like the boys would just ask these like really weird and like sometimes demeaning questions mm -hmm. towards women. And mm -hmm. I was like, I went home and talked to my mom about it. I'm like, they're asking all these really weird questions. And the teacher was a male. 
and he would like answer them. And so my mom was like, nope, you're done. <laughs> she was like, so they actually pulled me out of that class. Oh, wow. And then during that class, I would sit in on um, like a, I would just do like an independent study, a health study mm-hmm. during that class. Wow. So you, it's like you kept trying to get the information it, like, <laughs> and things just kept not working for you. But I actually met Adam in between my freshman and sophomore year of high school. And Adam is? He's my husband. Oh, okay. Yeah. The plot thickens. Yeah. So we actually <laughs> met when I was 15 and I was trying to cut myself. Well, my parents had told me you're leaving that school. And they were like, you are so messed up right now that you're going to Bible camp. And I was like, I am not going to Bible camp. They're like, no, you're going to Bible camp. And my mom was like, so distraught with like where I was physically because like skin and bones, you know, like no emotion, very sick, very like in a very bad spot mentally. I mean, like, the boyfriend that I was seeing in high school, every time he would break up, he would spread lies about me to like all the other people in the school. So I would get like messages from boys that were like, um, that I thought were friends. And they'd be like, you know, like, I'm, I've, I've got a birthday gift for you. And I'd be like, oh, okay, what? And they'd be like, it's a coupon book to have sex anytime you want, because I know that you're easy to go around. Oh, no. And there'd be like other girls who would be like, oh, don't talk to her. She's a homewrecker. Like, Ugh. she's a whore. She sleeps with whoever will sleep with her. And the funny thing is, is I had never slept with anybody. I think that's another reason why I always kept coming back to him was because I was like, if I do, then you'll stop spreading all these lies about me. And then, which then shaped the rest of my high school experience. So when my dad pulled me out and sent me to Bible camp, my mom didn't come because she's like, I can't, I cannot see her being dropped off. Like she's going to cry. She's not going to want to be there. And I can't be there for that because I'm going to want to bring her home. So my dad brought me and he was like, I'm leaving you. I'm not coming back until the week is done and you are going to have something big happen. I don't know what it is, but something big is going to happen and you are going to stay here. Wow. And then I met Adam the second day. Wow. Into Bible camp. And it's all because I heard, I had a friend in my camp. I mean, so immature, right? 15 year old. This is, (laughs) I had a girl in my dorm who really liked Adam and he liked a different girl. So I went up to him. I was like, you can't like that girl. And he was like, why? And I was like, you just can't like her. And he was like, okay. And then he's like, I'll like you and stuff. <laughs> it's the great beginning of a great relationship. It's <laughs> a great love story, right? Oh, my gosh. So um, before I just have a couple more questions before we move on to Adam. With this other boy, you hadn't had sex with him. How far did things go with him? Did you take your clothes off with him? Um, no, he always tried to get under my clothes and always touch me. But like, I came from a very, very conservative home. So I was always like, I I mean, I didn't even know what a boner was. So when I felt like when he would grab me, and I would like feel that I was like, what is happening to you? So I like googled it, you know, because like, we talked about sex, like we never talked about the fact that like, a penis has to get hard in order to like, get inside of a vagina, we just did like penis into vagina. So I didn't know what was going on. I mean, he would get to my boobs, he would get to my butt, but like, I was always like very good about like keeping that safe. And like I said, the one time was school was done and everybody had left. So I had to clean out my gym locker and I had forgotten to do that. So I walked to the locker room. I didn't know that he was following me. He followed me into the locker room 
and he trapped me against the lockers. He was a big boy, like football player, big. Everything has still blacked out for me, like from that moment. I just remember like being able to somehow like get away from him and then run out. And I don't remember how it happened. I just know that I was like able to get away at that point. So I think had I not had been able to, Mm-hmm. that I don't really know what would have happened. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago, too. You were saying, like, I don't know why I got into this. I was in a family, living family. I knew, you know, I wasn't missing anything. I think we have a narrative that says if we get into a traumatic situation, it's because we've had trauma in our past. Right. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that sometimes we just end up in bad situations. Sometimes... You know, like you go to a new school, you don't really know anybody, you're trying to figure out how to fit in and somebody shows you attention. Yeah, that's going to be exciting and interesting and attractive. I honestly don't think it needs to be any deeper than that. Because then once you're involved with him, he's then stepping you into this more sort of abusive situation. Right. Um, And as a naive girl who really didn't know a lot about the world, you're along for the ride. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I really think that it's allowed to be that simple. Yeah. I, I think for a long time, my brain was always like, why did you allow yourself to make that many mistakes when like you didn't have trauma? Now that I'm older and I've like, I can reflect on it. Like I know that it wasn't, it can be as simple as what you're saying. Like I know that now, but like in that time, there was so much blame on myself because I was like, why did you allow this to happen when you didn't have any trauma? Does that make more sense? It absolutely makes sense. Yeah. I just think it's really important to to pause and sort of highlight that for a moment because it can be really confusing, this narrative that we have about trauma begets trauma. That's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that trauma has to have a precursor. And also, it's sort of tied up in this idea that, you know, we create our own reality. And so if I get into a bad situation, then that means that I have done something or been somewhere bad. Like, I just think it's all bunk. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Adam. (laughs) Yeah. So you meet him, you tell him he can't like the other girl, he says, okay, then I'm gonna like you. How what was your feeling about that when he said that? Was it exciting? Was it scary? Oh, he didn't say that. He tells me that now. He tells me that now that we're married. He's like, you just came marching in and you were so confident. And he was like, okay, I'll like you. Um, he just kind of like started showing me like interest throughout the week. And at first I thought he was really annoying. Mm. He laughs all the time. I'm not a very happy person. (laughs) And so I was like, he's always happy. Like, what is up with this guy? And he was like, he was so pursuing of me, which I just, I wasn't used to somebody that was like pursuing me. Um, and then I left camp. So we got each other's numbers and we were just texting. And then throughout the summer, we just started getting to know each other. And I was 15 at the time. And then my dad and mom had said I wasn't allowed to date until I was 16. And so on my 16th birthday, he came down and he asked my dad if he could date me. Aww. And my, yes, it was really <laughs> sweet. My dad, he's a pastor. So, you know, like he was like, oh, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And Adam grew up in a church too. So, and Adam was like, 
nope. And he was like, then you can't date my daughter. Oh, wow. (laughs) And he still asked me. He still asked me to be his girlfriend. And I said, yes. I didn't know the conversation with my dad. So my dad was really mad about that. He was mad about that for quite a long time. But I mean, Adam, Adam is a very strong Christian now. So him and him and my dad have a great relationship. Like they've, they've been on trips together and they love each other a lot. So all of that is healed. But I think I jumped into a relationship with him so fast. And keep in mind, my parents knew nothing about anything that happened to me. I actually didn't tell my mom until I was 24 what had actually happened in high school. And my dad still doesn't know what happened. So I always like throughout Adam and I's relationship, they were always like, you're so young. You're so this, like, how do you know? And because I dated Adam and I was in a relationship with Adam, there was no way for that boy to get back Mm -hmm. to me because I had Adam. So I was in a new school and he would still text me and he would still message me this other boy. But I just like, I have a boyfriend now. I have a boyfriend now. I have a boyfriend now, you know? So it was like, there was no way for him to get back in. So I think that having Adam was what allowed me to like break myself off from that very toxic situation. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There is no single answer that's right for everyone, so I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life, and together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. So... What was your interest or attraction in Adam once he started pursuing you? Um, He's just so kind. Like he is one of the kindest men I have ever met. Like we've been together since 2010 mm-hmm. and he has never, ever yelled at me. He's never called me a bad name. 
he's just like shown me so much love. And I actually wrote a letter to him when we had been dating for about like six, seven months. That was like, this is what I've been through. This is what's happened to me. And it's formed who I am. And so I'm like, I need you to know this because I'm coming to you with baggage. Wow. In my 16, almost 17 year old brain, I was like, this is, this is a deal breaker. Like he's not going to want to be with someone who doesn't want to be touched, who gets anxious every time that someone comes around them and, and squeezes them really hard or touches their boobs. And I emailed it to him and I texted him on my iPod and I was like, hey, so I sent you an email and I need you to read it. You don't have to get back to me right away, but like, please don't like talk to me until you've processed it and decided what you want to do with it. I just have to pause here for a second and and say how amazing it is that at 16 years old, you had this level of self-knowledge and self-awareness. You were able to have, look back and say, this is what happened. And here are the here's what's happening with me as a result. Here's what you need to know. I mean, that is a massive amount of processing for a 16-year-old to do. That's incredible. And to then be have the awareness to say to him, I can't talk to you until you've processed this. Not just you've read it, but you've had the time to process it. I, I'm blown away. <laughs> I feel like it was, it had to, because I was like, it's going to be more painful for me if we get like a year and a half down the road. And like, you're like, okay, you've, you've been like avoiding me for like in and we okay so we didn't kiss for four months after we started dating mm -hmm. so we just took things really slow and I like not making out like just a single kiss right and I mean we were young that's different but I mean teenagers are horny right sure <laughs> <laughs> so like we took things really slow but I was like okay a year down the road if we're still together and you're like why are you like resisting me like why are you struggling with this like why why does it feel like there's a disconnect I don't want to have to break up a year and a half when we could have broken up like four or five mm -hmm. months into it yeah and then I would have had even more pain you know so it's probably more selfish really <laughs> why it's I wrote still, the letter <laughs> it's it's incredible it really is I know that you can't see that from the outside because you lived it but from the outside that is fucking amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I, this probably will amaze you even more. He got the email. I texted him. He read the email. He called me back five minutes after he read the email. And he was like, I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what that guy did to you. You and I's relationship is different. And I'm going to love you through that. And we'll work on that together. And he was, I was a sophomore. He was a senior. So he was a little bit older but like that has carried through wow. into like our marriage is that same, like he always shows up for me. He always is loving towards me, patient and kind. And you'll be probably blown away by this, but we actually didn't have sex till we got married. And it was five years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I am in love with Adam, even though I have never met him. <laughs> He's amazing. Every woman should have an Adam. Okay. <laughs> so what were those five years like for the two of you? Were they frustrating? Sexually frustrating? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what kept you what kept you faithful to that decision you had made? Um, when I was like 10, on that trip, 
we got a purity ring, right? Because that's something that our church was very strong on was like giving your kids purity rings to like signify that like I am going to save myself till marriage and then I'm going to give I'm going to replace my engagement ring with this purity ring that I wear, right? So that was like ingrained into me and even though my parents my parents were very open to talk about sex, you had sex when you were married, anything before that is a sin. No fingering, no blowjobs, no anal sex, nothing, nothing, no, no boob touching, no butt touching, no, nothing that was ingrained in my brain. And Adams comes from a Christian family too, but they never talked about sex. So he was just like, well, if that's what you need and that's what you want, then that's what we're going to do. We had conversations about having sex before we were married, but we were always just ended on like, no, we can't do that. Now I'm not going to say we were perfect. We got very close to having sex, but we never actually had oral sex, anal sex, or vaginal sex ever. Mm-hmm. Okay. A little hand stuff under the oh, yeah. table. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, my mom knows I'm recording this podcast, and I'm like, don't listen to it. I'm like, whenever it's aired, don't listen to it. You're not going to want to know. I love that. <laughs> because I have two younger sisters and she's like, you're talking to them, right? About like waiting for marriage and all this stuff. I'm like, yes, I'm talking to them, but I'm also like an open space. Like I'm like, come to me with whatever you've done and we'll process it. I'm not going to cast shame on you or, you know, regardless of what you've done, because girl, I did it. Anything that I could do with (laughs) sex, I did it. So yeah. So what was your wedding night like? Or if it wasn't your wedding night, what was your first experience of penetrative sex like? So it was our wedding night and it was so painful mm. that like I and my I did have friends that had waited till they were married to have sex and they were like, FYI, it's not like the movies. It's painful and it's not very fun and it can be really hard. And so I had another friend who was like, make sure you do lots of foreplay. And I'm like, well, we know what that is because we've done that. So <laughs> so like we just started with that. And like Adam had never actually seen me naked either. Wow. Yeah. So I like came in in this like Victoria's Secret lingerie and I think he like fainted. <laughs> His eyes just got like so big and he was like, what like it just like blew his mind that like (laughs) we went from like nothing to like now he's seeing me in this like sheer white lingerie and he's like oh my gosh (laughs) like you look so amazing but I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do (laughs) (laughs) so were you his first girlfriend yes I was his first girlfriend Mm -hmm. so this was a first for both of you Mm -hmm. so um when okay I have some assumptions about what must happen during the waiting until your wedding night, but, but they are based, they are just assumptions because I didn't experience that. My assumption is that no matter how much foreplay you've had before the wedding night, that when you get to that night, you're both like, we've been waiting for so long. Let's just do it. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason it's so painful, because there's not enough time for the woman to get lubricated. And neither of you really knows what you're doing. Right. Um, (laughs) So is that true? Like, did the two of you just sort of go at it? Or was there a lot of foreplay that night? We did foreplay, we did lubrication. But I think 
when your mind is very ingrained in like it's a sin before you get married. Yeah. That going from like at our at our wedding actual say like our reception, my dad kept being like, "You should go now. You should go now. You should go now. Like <laughs> you should go to the hotel." And I'm like, "But dad, it's like ten o'clock. Like we're people are still dancing. Like but you should go." And I was like, "Why are you like pushing like telling us to leave?" And like because I think that's like a natural thing. It's like, okay, well you're finally married, so like go have sex because you can have sex. It was just like really overwhelming though for me. Like I just, we, we had an hour long drive. I don't think I really said anything the whole drive down because I wasn't, I wasn't scared because Adam has never made me feel scared. He's always made me feel safe. He's always like at, are you okay with this? Are you okay with this? You know, like, is this, do you feel okay? You know, he's never made me feel unsafe, but that mindset shift is really really hard. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's really anything you can equate it to. So how long did it take for that mindset to shift for you to the place where you were able to relax and be present and have fun? Um, so I feel like it took a good few days into my honeymoon for my, like, for me to realize that like, okay, we're actually married. This is actually not a sin. It's actually fine. But I think it took longer than that, like even after my honeymoon for me to like not feel the weight of it, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just when we first had sex, I remember like we had, we had sex and there was enough lubrication, but after it was done, I was like, I just need to go have a bath. Like I just need to sit in the bath and I had to like process it. I was like, okay, we just did that. And he was like, well, do you want me to like sit with you? Like, do you want me to sit in the bath with you? I'm like, no, gosh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Just leave me alone. Like I just need like a little bit of space. Yeah. So I'm hoping that at some point it got good for you. Oh yeah. We have great sex now. I mean, we have two little kids, so it's like few and far between. But I mean, when we have sex now, I would say 95% of the time I can orgasm without a problem. He's just, we, and we have good, like good communication. So what are your, some of your favorite things to do? Um, let's see. So I'm actually a huge fan of missionary position and I'm actually a huge fan of like me on top. Those are like our two go-to positions. He knows what it's going to take for me to have an orgasm with him on top. And I know what it's going to take for me to have an orgasm with me on top. So it, it works out really well. Um, I feel like we always like start with just the same foreplay, which I'm like, we should really, we talked about this the other night. I'm like, we should really like mix this up a little bit, but it just works. You know, uh-huh. you start with like, like fingering and stuff like something like that, or like entry level penetration. And then um, sometimes go from behind and then we'll like finish with either him on top or or me on top or him on top. So yeah, and it works. Great. And so you've talked about not liking to have your boobs um, grabbed. Do you not like having them touched at all? Or is it just that grabby sensation that you don't like? So I generally have to keep a bra on when we're having sex. Oh, wow. Because I just, I don't like them being like, just out and like open it just feels like so vulnerable it feels like I don't have a say Hmm. really when they're gonna be touched 
I shouldn't feel like that with him, but I've like I've explained this to him so many times. I'm like, it's not you, because he's always like, well, what can I do to make you feel more comfortable? I'm like, it's not you. It's just the situation. Like I, I try to get there, and if I feel comfortable and I'm fine with it, then I'll tell him while we're having sex. Like I'm fine mm-hmm. if you touch my boobs. I will like verbalize that to him, so he knows it's a safe space if he wants to go there. But he also knows that like I will withdraw and retreat. And then I most likely won't have an orgasm if like he goes there without me like saying something, you know, Mm -hmm. if he starts to go there and I know that that will happen, then I'll just move his hand. And if I don't say anything, then sometimes he will touch my boobs and it's fine. But he knows that if I move his hand away that it's like, no, 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're not going there. Not only is it not about him, it's not about you at 26 years old, this is you at 14 years old, who's responding. In the moment that he goes for your boobs, he is no longer having sex with 26 year old you. No. And and that's, I think, really important to remember. I'm also curious if, um, well, first of all, are you interested in moving through this? Or is this something that you're okay with? Because both of those are valid choices. Um. So I mean, I think within like the Christian community, there's like classes you can do that like help heal you of trauma. Like there's one called Awaken Love. And like, I've thought about it, but I'm kind of at the spot where I'm like, I really want to do that like work together. I, we like, we're trying to explore different things that make me feel comfortable. And rather than just like going to someone and being like, help me to figure out how to heal myself of this trauma. You know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to like work through that more with Adam and know that like he is a safe space, you know, like he is someone I can trust. He's someone who will never hurt me. He will never harm me. He will never take advantage of me. So like when I do feel comfortable, I'm moving to this place now being after being married for five years where I'm like, okay, it's all right. My bra can come off. It's okay. It will be fine. And then to just allow myself to be like naked when I'm done. And not feel like I need to like completely dress myself right away. But just like, okay, it's all right. It's okay that my boobs are out. It's fine. And like, that's how I've been doing some of the healing, which is very different than when we first got married. Because like, I was like, don't like, just Mm -hmm. don't. Yeah, I have some ideas for for things that you might be able to try to in working through this. Um, and if you're interested, we can talk about those. Be happy to yeah. share that with you. Okay. Um, I think sort of the first one is that you need to be in charge. Like mm-hmm. you literally need to be the one who takes his hand and puts it on your boob mm-hmm. and says, okay, now touch me this way squeeze, stroke, nipple, no nipple, whatever it is, like you need to be 100% in control. And probably at a time, the two of you are not working towards having orgasms. This probably needs to be a time that the two of you set aside to just get comfortable with the idea of your breasts being touched and you being in control and you being able to say, okay, stop, I'm done. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that that's probably the first step. 
And that seems like really scary to me for some yeah. reason. Like the thought of that. I'm not surprised. Seems yeah, be- really scary. <laughs> because it's really different from anything you've done before. So we have these neural pathways in our brains. And what happens is a trigger happens and then a response happens. And when that trigger gets pressed and the response happens, the more times it happens, this neural pathway gets built and it gets stronger and stronger every time that happens, that it gets triggered and then there's the response. So you now have this neural pathway that has been created around your breasts being touched. And it every time it gets triggered, it just goes, oh, I know how to do that. I respond Mm -hmm. like, no, don't do that. I don't want that. I leave Mm -hmm. my body. I don't have any more sexual sensation. So what we're talking about here is creating a new neural pathway. And that makes your brain go, what the fuck do you think you're doing? This is not how we play. Right. (laughs) And all of its defense mechanisms come up. So yeah, it's going to be a little bit scary. Yeah. And here's the thing. Scary, but intriguing and exciting Mm -hmm. is good. That's a positive kind of scary growth. Scary, I feel like I'm going to vomit and want to go lie in bed for the next three days. That is not good. That is scary. That's taking your nervous system too far too fast. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, where does it fall on that scary scale for you? If it's a little bit exciting you have the capability to move through that scary and actually try something new. Mm -hmm. You may or may not like it and that's okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if it feels vomit inducing (laughs) and like you need to crawl under the covers, don't do it because that's just going to re-traumatize you. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's it's just going to reinforce that neural pathway right. that's already set up that, that we don't want. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. It makes complete sense. I think I'm on the, it makes me want to vomit, but it doesn't make me want to be in my bed for three days. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a positive, like that's an excellent distinction for you to make. Mm-hmm. And And maybe we can talk about some other ways to ease into it more gently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I never want a guest on this show to be surprised or upset by the types of questions I ask. So I require informed consent before we begin an interview. Either they've listened to an episode or we've had a detailed conversation about the topics we'll cover. And if I ask a question they aren't comfortable with, they know that we can pause the interview to renegotiate. The same thing should be true in our bedrooms. We should know what we're getting into before we begin and how to make adjustments if it's not going the way we expected. But it's rare for anyone to teach us how to have those conversations. That's just one of the reasons I love Dipsy so much. In their audio erotica stories, you hear characters having explicit consent conversations that are sexy and don't kill the mood. Because a consent conversation 
can be hella sexy when it's done well. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories designed to turn you on. And many, if not most, include some consent conversation woven into the story. This is the perfect way to learn by listening and give yourself a happy ending at the same time. Dipsy releases new content every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. It's your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, or heat things up with your partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash goodgirls. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash goodgirls. That link is in the show notes. So go to dipsystories.com slash goodgirls. I know that you've had a couple of pregnancies that ended in live births and also a couple of pregnancies that didn't. Yes. And that that has that that has created some experiences for you around sex and sexuality. Yep. So I want to just sort of open the floor to you and, and let you tell the story the way that you want to. So Adam and I got married June 13th, 2015, and we got pregnant with my first daughter that same year in November. So four months after we got married, we got pregnant. I was on birth control, but I am a strong Christian. So like I really felt something inside of me say like, or just felt like I needed to get off birth control. I didn't really know why, but I just like felt this like, I need to get off of it. And it wasn't necessarily doing anything to me, Hmm. but I just had this very strong feeling. So I got off birth control. We were using condoms and I mean, we're still new to sex, right? Like only, we've only been married for three months and we never did it before. So one time we had sex too fast to put a condom on and there was my first daughter. Wow. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to get pregnant the first time we have a slip up. But nope. Um, so she was born a year and two months after we got married. So we were thrown into parenthood really fast after being married. She was an amazing blessing and still is. But then after we had one, we were I was actually still in college when I got pregnant with her because I was only 20 when we got married. So I had 20, my 21st birthday, and then I got pregnant with her. So I was showing up to my method classes 30 weeks pregnant. So that was unique. (laughs) (laughs) So you're still just figuring out sex. (laughs) And suddenly, now you're figuring out parenthood and how to have sex during parenthood. Like that is a lot to take on. Yeah. And how to be pregnant and have sex. Like that's a whole nother ballgame, right? Like, You could just do a podcast on like, what is it like to have sex when you're pregnant? Okay, so tell me, what's it like to have sex while you're pregnant? I feel like it's ever changing because like sometimes your belly's so big that like you can't have the husband go on top. And sometimes you're just so nauseous, he can't be on top and you have to be on top. (laughs) And Uh sometimes you have to poop right in the middle of it because... (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, you're like, things are getting pressed where they shouldn't be getting pressed. <laughs> you know, or like the conversation of like, um, is my penis going to hit the baby? No, yeah. no, <laughs> like, no, that's not going to happen. What if your water breaks? Well, that'll be unique. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like so many weird things, you know, like you never thought about or like after you have sex, the like rhythm motion you know of having sex puts your baby to sleep but then like you don't feel your baby move so you're like are they okay like did something oh, happen no. to them while like we had sex and then you're just like you're the I asked the doctor one time I'm like after we had sex I don't feel the baby move she's like you probably put her to sleep I'm like <laughs> oh that's weird <laughs> oh that's so weird. amazing <laughs> So yeah, it's just like, it's still so different. So we went from like, never having sex to like having sex and then getting pregnant. And I get very sick when I'm pregnant. Mm. So then we had her and I finished school. I went student taught while she was one. And then while I was student teaching, she was like I said, she was one. So my husband and I were like, well, I'm almost done teaching. Why don't we just try to have a baby? Because my goal, my idea of my five year plan was to have four children by the time I was 28 and I was wow. going to be done. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I was going to be done. Every two years I was going to have them and be finished and be able to be like still young when my kids were all out of the house so I could travel the world. Mm -hmm. So I got pregnant right away. I had like spotting while I was pregnant at six weeks and eight weeks and 10 weeks. Mm. And so I would go into the doctor every time they would do an ultrasound and um, the baby was fine. Every I had a subchronic hemorrhage. It's basically like a bleed inside of the uterus. Mm. And so it um, is very common. Usually the placenta just absorbs it and it is fine. It doesn't harm babies. I had an appointment when I was 12 weeks. I was going to be 13 weeks pregnant. I had a doctor's appointment. It was the week before Christmas. And I was like, I need to go to the doctors early. I told my husband, he was like, why? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I have a feeling that something is wrong. I don't know why I have this feeling, mm -hmm. but I have a feeling something's wrong. And so we went, I scheduled the appointment earlier and he, before I left, he's like, what do you think is wrong? And I was like, I think that the baby has down syndrome or something. And he was like, okay, well, that's not really insurmountable. And I was like, no, it's not. But I just like, need peace of mind to know that the baby's okay. And so I made an appointment a week early. They got me in that morning. She tried to find a heartbeat and she was like, you probably just have a very stubborn baby boy inside of you. We're going to send you to ultrasound and we'll just make sure that the baby's fine. So I went to ultrasound and the ultrasound tech was like, I'm really sorry. Your baby has no heartbeat. Mm. And I was like, like, how did that happen? I was like, how big is the baby measuring? And she was like, the baby's measuring 11 weeks and six days. So I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, I'm 11 weeks and six days today. Like I know when I conceived, I knew the, I know the exact day. And she was like, you probably lost the baby this morning. So like mm. that whole like feeling like something was wrong was because like my body knew that I had lost the baby. And so I went to my doctor afterwards and she refused. So when you have a, a miscarriage, you can either deliver the baby at home or you can have a surgery to have the baby basically like taken out of you. 
It's called the DNC, and it's actually very similar to an abortion, but obviously, like, Mm -hmm. in medical terms, it's called a DNC because your baby's already passed away. Like, it's not Mm -hmm. like your baby is alive, but a lot of Christians are very, like, no, you, you don't have a DNC. But I was like, it's my body, and I feel like it's the right choice for me to have a DNC. So she refused to do it. I don't know. She just was like, no. We're not doing that. And I was like, wow. I was like, well, why? She's like, you you can deliver your baby at home. There's no medical reason to tell you that you need a DNC. So my best friend is an OB. So I called her and she was like, come to my clinic. She's like, I will do the surgery for you tomorrow. So she booked me into the clinic. She did the surgery. Another reason I wanted to have the surgery done is because you can know the gender and you can also test the tissues for chromosomal abnormalities. So I um, had the DNC done and um, I had a very complicated recovery. I bled for eight weeks after the surgery. You're only supposed to bleed for like two. Every time we had sex, I would bleed. Wow. Every time I did housework, I would bleed. So that like created a very different experience for sex because it when it where it was not painful before it was now painful and every time we had sex after we were done and I would go to the bathroom there would be blood which would just like bring me back to that very traumatic mm. place mm-hmm. somehow in between there I managed to get pregnant again wow that's surprising that that's even physically able and it's interesting because I have polycystic ovarian syndrome So it's very interesting to me that I was able to get pregnant while I was pretty much consecutively having, they weren't periods because anything that I did of overworking or sex would restart the bleeding. So it wasn't a period, Mm -hmm. but so I got pregnant and my best friend was my OB then after that. And so she had me in the clinic at six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 11 weeks. And she was watching the baby grow to see like, okay, is everything looking good? And so before my 12-week appointment, um, I think it was like 11 weeks and six days. So right at the exact same time as we had lost our first baby and I was about to go for my 12-week ultrasound, my breast friend was like, okay, let's have lunch before. So we sat and we had lunch together and she was like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I feel like anybody who has gone through something like this feels anxiety before they go to an ultrasound at the exact same time they lost their other baby. Right. So we went and she's like, well, don't worry. We've watched the baby grow is very unlikely that this would happen twice. So I went into the ultrasound and we started it. My friend held my hand. She's a Christian too. She held my hand. She's going to be okay. Like I'm here with you. I'm for you. And so she started looking no heartbeat again. Oh, wow. And the baby was measuring 11 weeks and five days. So oh my God. I lost the babies literally 24 hours gestationally apart from each other. And so I did the same thing, had another surgery. And so my friend took my case to a board of doctors and she was like, this is so not normal to lose mm-hmm. two babies within 24 hours gestationally of each other. Mm-hmm. And um, she went and got consultations and a very long story short, they found out I have a blood clotting disorder. 
So basically what happens is from conception to about 10, between 10 and 12 weeks, your baby lives off of a yolk sac. The yolk sac diminishes and the placenta attaches. But the my placentas were too clotted to pass nutrients. Mm. And so what happens is 95% of people who have this blood clotting disorder don't actually even know that they have it. But it awakens in some people when your body has a peak in estrogen. So I was on estrogen-based birth control before I got pregnant with Aveline. And I had that strong feeling like you need to get off Mm -hmm. of birth control, not really knowing why, but had I been on it long term, it would have awakened my disease. So like the doctors were like, you literally have one medical miracle because if you would have stayed on it, you wouldn't have had her. So for me, I'm like, that's like the grace of God because I'm like that I would never have her. Um, So I saw a blood doctor and the blood doctor was like, my mom came with me to that appointment. She's like, I have to know if this is in our genetics. Like, I want to know where it came from, why you have it. And for my sisters too, you know? Mm-hmm. So the doctor was Indian and my mom is Indian. And she was like, well, it's definitely not from your side of the family because this blood clotting disorder does not happen in Asian people. And so my mom was like, okay. So my dad got tested. He came back negative. My mom got tested. She came back positive. So, oh my goodness. Yeah, right? So somewhere in her family line, there was a white or like American European person somewhere that passed that down. So same with my second surgery, very, very bad bleeding, Mm -hmm. very prolonged bleeding. So once you have two very significant losses, they move you to a special, like a specialist doctor who Mm -hmm. specializes in reproductive endocrinology. And she was like, too bad, so sad, try again. And I was like, I don't know how you even fathom the thought of having sex unprotected when you know that the result Mm. could be the same, you know? Mm -hmm. My husband and I like had to deal with a lot of that in our sex life was just me being very paralyzed with fear of like one, getting pregnant, two of losing another baby and three of bleeding. Mm -hmm. I started having panic attacks every time I would see blood because I was like, what's happening? Like, am I, is my body going back into that like place of healing? Mm -hmm. Like, am I going to be shedding more? And the second time I actually didn't stop bleeding. And every time we had sex, it was like more blood, like more and more blood. It's like restarting the healing process. And so I went back, um, I saw, I saw a different reproductive endocrinologist and he said I needed to have a test done where they basically like fill your uterus up with water. So they like go in with a catheter, fill everything up with water Mm. and they see like, do you have cysts? Do you have polyps? Is your uterus shaped? Okay. And when they went inside of me, I was awake for it. So I could see all of it. They were like, you have a huge mass inside of your uterus. Oh, And I was like, okay. And they're like, it's either two things. It's either cancer or it's retained placental tissue. Oh, wow. So they were like, the only thing we can do is go and do another surgery to clear everything out and see what we find. So I had another surgery to get it all out, found out it was placental remains. And then they said I had to do a fertility treatment in order to get pregnant again. Um, They needed to see the exact time of conception between the egg and the sperm and they needed to force the ovulation. And then they wanted to also start me on blood thinners from 
the time that they gave me the conception shot. How long was this after the second loss? Like, how much time did your body have to recover? Um, so I lost Nova in May, and I did the fertility treatment in September. Wow, that's fast. Yeah. So your body has been through a pregnancy, a loss, a loss, and a fertility treatment in very quick order. Yeah, and and three surgeries. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> I'm stunned. Yeah. And I think at this point, people are telling me like, you don't have to do it. Like you don't have to do the first solar treatment. You don't have to have another baby. Like you can give yourself time. But I was just like in a place where I was like, no, I need to prove that I can do it again. Mm. Like I've done it once. I need to prove that I can do it again. And so I was just like, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to make sure that I have another baby because I want another baby. So I had a really good team of doctors, three doctors, hematologists, OBGYN, reproductive endocrinologists. They all worked with me. We did a level one fertility treatment, which is where they monitor your eggs. They give you drugs to supercharge your ovaries. Super painful, by the way. Mm. And then you take a shot at home. And then that forces your body to ovulate. And then you have timed intercourse right after you give the shot. And then 36 hours later. So this is where it gets really interesting. Um, I had to tell my parents, I'm having a fertility treatment. I have to have sex at right away <laughs> and at 36 hours afterwards. Uh-huh. So I'm like, it might not line up at bedtime. So I'm like, <laughs> if... I have to have sex. You have to have my daughter. Yeah. Like there's no, no, my dad was like, do we need to have this conversation? I'm like, yes, we do. Because like we're doing this. So I need you to help us do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I will tell you that was the most painful sexual encounter I have ever had in my marriage. Like when mm. I think about conceiving my daughter that I, my second daughter that I have now, there is no sunshine. There is no roses. Mm. There's no, no happiness mm-hmm. to that. And I think that is something that I had to grieve as well. When I conceived my first daughter, it was like a moment of like extreme passion where you just like rip each other's clothes off yeah. and you just have sex. Right. And then my other daughter was so incredibly painful when I think about it. I actually still wince because Mm. it was so, so painful. Hmm. Wow. So very different, right? Yeah, yeah. So the sex that you had that was non-procreative sex Mm -hmm. during this whole period, was it enjoyable? Like it starts, you're bleeding again. So like... Is there some stress around it, fear, or are you able to just sort of relax into the enjoyment of having sex? I wouldn't say it was enjoyable. I wouldn't say it was something I like loved doing. We didn't have it very often, like maybe once every couple weeks because it just Mm -hmm. took me so long to build myself up to the point where I was like, okay with the fact that I might see blood after I was done. Mm, Yeah. And it was more like, I want to connect with you. I know that we're living in this perpetual state of very intense grief. And I want to find a way to connect with you because I don't have, 
I can't talk to you. I just, I mean, I would cry all the time. I would sometimes be like laying on the floor, hyperventilating from tears. Mm. I couldn't, and Adam would be like, how can I help you? What's wrong? Like, what can I do? And I just like, I you can't do anything. Yeah. Like, I just feel so much pain and sadness and grief that I don't know how to express it to you. And so I felt like sex was a way to connect, but it took so much of me to get to that spot of being ready to do it that when I did it, I was tense anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After your second successful pregnancy, mm-hmm. and congratulations. Yes. I'm very happy for you. What has sex been like for you now that you're, and I'm going to assume you're not in a procreative time right now. Mm-mm. Um. So what has sex been like for you since you're sort of in a more normalized part of your life? Um, It's great now. I mean, after we had, after I had my second daughter, who's going to be two tomorrow, uh-huh. um, I had this like, so I did shots with her my whole pregnancy. So from conception until six weeks postpartum. So that in, in and of itself was a big undertaking. So after I got done with that, I felt sort of like I was leaving the past difficulty behind. I was able to focus on my new baby and focus on a new avenue with my husband because I had what my heart desired. And it was like, I didn't feel like I was stuck in grief because not that her birth replaced my two babies because I would do anything and everything to have them back. Mm -hmm. But it filled my heart with like hope that like it is possible and God always works everything together for good. And so then I felt like I was able to more focus on Adam and be like, okay, you know, not when in the newborn days, you know, when it's like, everything's a fog, like that's hard. (laughs) But like after she, when she was a few months old, I felt like we got back into a rhythm of being able to like communicate better and talk about things and process the grief that we had been through. We did marriage counseling for a while. I did grief counseling for a while. And so now we know each other really well and we know what works and we know what doesn't work. And he's really good if I'm like, I don't, I'm just not there. He's really good at being, okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Like, that's totally fine. And so sex is great. Like we have, we have fun. We laugh. We, we talk. Our marriage isn't perfect. We fight. We argue. We have disagreements. <laughs> like, I don't want to paint this perfect I'm glad picture. to hear it. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. Like, we and, – and in counseling, we don't just, like, talk about our drama. We talk about just problems that we have in our marriage because mm-hmm. it's not sunshines and roses. It's hard. I think we just take all of the stuff that we're learning about each other and never allow ourselves to go through a long period where we're not having sex because I think that then – resentment can creep in and we don't fight and have sex. I'm not, I don't feel like we do that, but we try to make it a priority so that we can enjoy each other and not just get stuck on the mundane tasks of parenting and life and work and all that kind of stuff. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free, and one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. 
Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex? I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you. Whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener, I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. So are you still wanting four children? Well, my husband wants more. He wants a boy. But I just feel like Right now, I'm really content in the season that we're in. And I mean, he'd be fine if we have girls. I feel like I shouldn't just make him out to be like, I only, I really want a boy. I don't want any more girls. He'd be fine with girls, but he would like a boy. And I feel like I'm not ready to step back into that season of having to do shots Mm -hmm. from the time that we conceive to the time that we um, Mm -hmm. are after I've had a baby six weeks postpartum. Like I'm not ready for that. Knowing that I might need a fertility treatment, my doctor will not give anybody my height. So I'm 5'4", and anyone over 5'4", with polycystic ovarian syndrome, he will not do a fertility treatment if they weigh more than 175 pounds. So I'm working. I have feelings about that. Yes, <laughs> yes. And that's that's hard because it's like then I'm like right now I'm on a I'm trying to lose weight so that if I do need another one I'm at a weight that I could healthily do it which it's not fair it's it's a very skewed system but yeah that's what I have to do so I'm working on that and I told Adam I'm like I'm not going to have any babies until I'm at a point where I feel like I am happy with where my body's at. I don't look at my body with disdain. I don't look at it as disgusting. I, I'm i so proud of it for what it's done. But at the same time, I know I need to be in a spot where I can healthily carry another baby without my weight being a factor in causing clots or, you know, because I'm at a higher risk for clots. So if I'm overweight when I'm having mm-hmm. a baby, then I'm at even higher risk for that. So, hmm. Okay. 
I have thoughts, but I'm going to keep them to myself. You can share them. You won't <laughs> offend me. No, no, it's not about offending you. I, I'm just, I'm learning a lot recently about the way that weight stigma affects healthcare, especially for yeah. women and especially around fertility. And it's super not okay. Yeah. I'm going to leave it there. And now it's time for the lowdown. The things we're dying to know, but would usually be too polite to ask any good girl. Do you have sex during your period? We don't have sex (laughs) on my period because it just like freaks Adam out. Like he's so not a blood person. So he just is like, no way. I'll wait till you're done. And then he always asks me like at day five, he's like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's the approximate number of sex partners you've had? One. What's your favorite sex toy? I don't have one right now, but I am exploring some ideas. All right. What kinds of things are you exploring? Vibrating, sucking, uh, just a regular dildo with no vibrations. What's your what's your interest? So I've seen this like clit gel. Have you seen that? You probably have. Obviously you have. Sense like heightens the clitoral stimulation. Yeah. So I've been looking at that. And that has been what has really piqued my interest because our sex is really good right now. Uh-huh. So I'm like, I don't feel like I need a toy right now, but I'm like, that sounds fun. All right. Do you prefer to initiate or for your partner to initiate in the bedroom? Well, Adam, I feel like is at a point where he never knows if I'm too tired or not. So he'll be like, do you want to have sex? And I'll be like, sure or no. So now I'm more the one who's like, do you want to have sex? And he's like, yes, I do. Every time. Yes, I do. (laughs) Unless you're on your period. (laughs) Unless I'm on my period, then no. Um, Are you generally more active or more passive during lovemaking? Um, So I actually really like it when he takes control. So I'm always like, now you take control. You tell me what you want to do and I will make it work for me around that. All right. Um, do you prefer clit stimulation or penetration? 50-50. Do you enjoy G-spot di- stimulation? I don't think we've explored that enough. Do you think it's generally easy or challenging for you to orgasm? Easy. Have you ever faked an orgasm? Yes. Oh, I feel like who hasn't? <laughs> <laughs> Recently? No, not recently, but like more when we were first married and I'm like, I know he wants me to think this is amazing, but I don't Mm -hmm. really, but it's just not yet. So (laughs) what kind of touch do you enjoy most? Um, non-sexual touch. Uh, Sexual or non-sexual? Um, I like hugs. I just really like hugs. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they just, I don't know, release that oxytocin and help you to feel closer. Yeah. What are your hard red lines, the things you absolutely don't want to do in bed? To be honest, BDSM freaks me out. I like listen to your podcast on that. And I just was like, oh my goodness, I just don't think I could ever do that. Uh huh. That just, I mean, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it, but I'm, I feel like, whoo, that freaks me out. Sure. Okay. 
Are there things that you've tried that you never want to do again? I don't know. I Not that I can think of off the top of my head. How do you feel about porn? I do not watch porn. Um, my husband actually used to have a problem with it. Like he was addicted to watching it before we got married. And so we just, he's doesn't watch it anymore. And I've never watched it. And I don't think I would. When you say he was addicted to it, what does that mean? Like he would watch watch porn. I don't know. He never he's never actually told me how much he used to watch of it. But off I don't know, probably every day mm-hmm. and he would masturbate and then like he would that's how he got his like and this is like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, mm-hmm. seventeen, because we met when I when I was eight even eighteen, because like it was when we got engaged that he was like, I have a problem. I have to stop this before we get married because I don't want to bring this into our marriage. And so he like put filters on everything. He got rid of all his social media. He like has accountability people and he's never looked at it since. I would suggest, and this may or may not be of any use to either of you, but I would suggest that's not an addiction. I would say that um, that is a behavior that has been stigmatized, Mm -hmm. especially I assume in the church. That's not a cool thing. Um, it's a behavior that's been stigmatized, but that does not automatically mean that it's an uh, it's an addiction. And I think it's important to understand the difference because porn is something that you can choose to use it or not use it, but to stigmatize it in that way somehow makes it like I'm a bad person for doing this. Yes. And that is not the case. And that's definitely not what I would want. I don't want people to think that I think that, but that's just Mm -hmm. what he's always said. So I'll have to tell him that because I do think it is in a Christian circle, like, no, like Mm -hmm. you don't, that's so bad, you know? Yeah. And that's part of why I ask because in, based on what I have read and heard from Christians, even the use of pornography at all ever constitutes an addiction. And that's simply not true. Right. And I think that's important. Um, do you have hair down there or are you bare? Oh, I have hair down there, but I have a beard trimmer and I keep it trimmed. (laughs) Right. Do you enjoy giving blowjobs? Nope. I do not. (laughs) Is that a problem for you and Adam? No, like I, like I honestly cannot express this enough of like how good of a rhythm we're in that like right now. He doesn't mind it. We don't have sex a lot, Mm -hmm. like maybe once, twice a week, but it's just really good that he doesn't ever really ask for it because he's like, you want to have sex? And then he just, we just have sex. All right. Do you enjoy receiving oral sex? Not really. Uh How do you feel about ass play? Never done it, but I feel like that is another thing that is, can sometimes be very controversial in Christian circles. I don't actually have anything against it, but I, I've never done it because I feel like that's something that's been ingrained in my brain as like, God did not make your body for that. Okay. And so I have had to like remove even oral sex. Actually, a lot of Christians believe that oral sex is not okay. Mm -hmm. And that's not even true at all. Because you're spilling the seed outside of a method for procreation is that why no because you're like god made a vagina and a penis to fit perfectly together 
and he didn't make your mouth to fit a penis or a vagina. But I highly disagree with that because if you actually look at scripture in Songs of Solomon, which is a book all about sex, it talks about oral sex. So I don't know. I don't know where some Christians get that from, but. Interesting. All right. Good to know. I'm going to have to look up Song of Solomon. Yeah, it's literally all about sex. (laughs) Do you enjoy dirty talk during sexual encounters? Oh, yeah. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. Do you enjoy laughter during sexual encounters? Oh, man. I feel like we don't laugh during sex. I mean, I've never, we've never really laughed during it, but I mean, we have like, we laugh afterwards together and in, in just like normal conversation. We don't, and like when, you know, after we get done and we just like talking and mm-hmm. there's no problem having laughter then, but we don't ever really laugh during sex. I wouldn't, I don't think I'd have a problem with it. Have you ever felt a sexual urge that confused you? Hmm. I, at, like before we were first married, I always used to want to have like deep penetration sex, but we didn't really know how to do that. And I was like, is that weird? Like, do people like not want to have deep penetration sex? And so I ended up just doing my own research because I love the Cosmo and reading all the positions. And I found like different sex positions that give you deep penetration. And so I was like, hey, I really want to do this. And he was like, okay. Awesome. What's your favorite part of your body? Oh, man. Um, So I feel like maybe my smile and my eyes, because I feel like people always say, like, I was very drawn to you by, like, how happy you are and how, like, smiley you are. And so I feel like that's something that I really love because it has actually been a really big journey for me to get to a place where I feel like I am a happy person and I have genuine Mm. joy in my life given the things that I've gone through. Yeah. What's your least favorite part of your body? Oh, my love handles. I know I should love them more because they gave me four children, but whoo. (laughs) (laughs) Society tells you not to love them though. It's really hard and it's hard to be postpartum, be a postpartum mom and feel comfortable showing up to the beach in a bikini, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is something about your current sex life that isn't quite as satisfying as you'd like it to be? So I feel like we could do better on changing things up. I feel like we know what works. And so we're like in that position of this works, let's do it. And we don't really experiment with a lot of different things as much as we used to because we know what works. And so we've had to have conversations about that lately of like, okay, we need to get out of the boat because in like, this is eventually going to get boring and it could cause there to be like, not necessarily resentment, but it could be a problem. So we really need to like branch out a little bit. And finally, what belief did you have about sex as a child or teenager that you wish you could go back and correct her on now? That... Sex is bad before marriage and anything that is like leading to sex is bad before Mm -hmm. marriage. I think that that is a huge thing that like I am changing with my kids. For example, we started reading our girls a book series that's called The Story of Me. And it talks about how girls have vaginas, boys have penises, and how it's normal and it's natural. And like you were created that way. And 
this is how a baby's made. This is where a baby comes from. So my four-year-old knows I came through my mommy's vagina. One of my mommy's friends had a C-section, so the baby was cut from her. And we're keeping these topics so open so that she never feels like she can't ask a question. So she never feels like it's off limits, you know? And that's something that like I just didn't feel like I had. And so I am changing the trajectory of that with my kids. Like we didn't name body parts as they were. A penis was a pee-pee and a vagina was like your privates. And I'm like, no, 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 no. They are going to be penis and they are going to be vagina. And we are going to talk about boobs and we are going to, it's going to be all on the table so that when you are in a situation, like if you ever face what I faced, that you can come to me and you can be like, mom, this is happening to me right now. And I need your help. And I think it's made a big difference because my four-year-old is like very extroverted like me. And we were at Sam's club the other day and this lady goes, oh my gosh, your kids are so cute. And I said, thank you. And um, she asked, how old are you? And she said to my oldest and my oldest goes, I'm four and I'm a girl and mommy's a girl and my sister's a girl and we have ginas. And I think that oh. lady, <laughs> her like face, just like her eyes got so big. She was like an elderly lady and she was like, oh my gosh. I was like, all right, moving along swiftly. My mom's like, serves you right. You're such a millennial with your parenting. I'm like, no, I'm just doing it different. You know, like I just want it to be different. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I love that. Hannah, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad to have had it with you. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at goodgirlstalk for more sex positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are are not broken. 
As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.